Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest on today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning is Joel Monk. Joel is the co-founder of Coaches Rising and is very passionate about the role coaches can play in our turbulent times. He is also a coach and has worked with hundreds of executives, entrepreneurs, and CEOs from many different countries around the world. He takes a cross-paradigmatic approach to his coaching and is influenced by developmental theory, Steve March and Alethia coaching, Thomas Hubel, circling, Doug Silsby, purpose guiding, somatics, focusing, AEDP, and more. He hosts the very popular Coaches Rising podcast, where he interviews incredible people to explore how they work with others to facilitate transformation, and he lives in Amsterdam with his beautiful family. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. And in this episode, Joel has presence Red Cross. I have donated. Please join me in donating. And the link, as always, is in the show notes. And I experienced Joel to be someone who has always been committed to creativity and aliveness. And that has permeated in his work and in his life since well before he got into coaching. So we spend a little bit of time talking about his past as a DJ and as a creator and how those were his best attempts at being the best version of himself, but he just felt that something was missing. There was probably a spiritual and purpose-driven component that just wasn't quite there. And so in 2009, he co-founded Coaches Rising. And a lot of this conversation focuses on the role of coaches in this rapidly changing world. And one of the greatest gifts that we can give as coaches is the power of our presence. So in this conversation and in Joel's work, he explores that through the lens of embodiment, through the modalities that were mentioned in his bio, developmental theory, purpose guiding, presence-based coaching, there's so many different things that intersect in Joel's work that make him a prolific coach and a prolific founder, a, a prolific coach of coaches and a guide for all of us who are trying to be the change that we wish to see in the world. As Joel articulates very eloquently in this conversation, to be the change we want to see in the world, we need to look inwards. It all starts and in some ways ends with the level of depth of work that we are willing to do with ourselves. And so if you are looking to untap your potential and to experience a deep transformation in your life, it almost always starts inwards. And so we talk about what that might look like in his own life, in the work he does with clients, and from all of the knowledge he has downloaded from the amazing practitioners that he has both interviewed and congregated in the wonderful Coaches Rising community. I really enjoyed this conversation. Him and I dropped in pretty easily with each other, which is a testament to 
the power of Joel's presence. I felt like I was talking to a long lost friend and it was the first time that we ever met. So with all of that said, let's go ahead and settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy what Joel has for us right now. Joel, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, my friend. Thank you so much, Mike. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about our conversation today. Me too. Me too. I'm, I'm so excited for all the places. As I named before we hit record, I just, it's an embarrassment of riches with all the different topics that we could discuss. And I want to start with just understanding more about you and all of the appearances that I've ever heard you do. I don't think that anyone has ever asked you a version of this question. So I would love to hear what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Yeah, that's a great question. Really great question. Well, first of all, it's, it's, it's actually a, a really great question and actually something I've been talking with my wife about recently because I, I'm grateful that we sat at the dinner table growing up and that's something my wife, uh, she's Dutch, really cares about. We sit at the dinner table every night and I remember when I was growing up at some point that ended and I used to just then go upstairs to my room and eat by myself, which I also really enjoyed. Yeah, what was it like at my dinner table? Well, you, you know, first of all, I would say there was often really nice food because both my mother and father were great cooks. My father would cook very regularly as well. So I, I, I think there was, you know, I remember that there was a kind of sensuality around the dinner table. So we ate well and kind of rich, not, not always rich food, but, you know, it tasted good. And I remember as a child just really enjoying that, you know, I liked to eat and I, I you know, I'd eat well. And so, there, and, and there was enough food, you know, very lucky like that. So, so that's the first thing that jumps out. And I remember, you know, we'd have these long Sunday dinners where in this is quite traditional England where we'd, you know, sit around and my dad would bring out this big roast chicken or piece of beef and we would all eat together. And it's funny because like, I actually have never really thought about this. So I'm like, what was it like around my dinner table? You know, my parents were both kind of quite very liberal. So I do remember like being able to explore where we wanted to go. Although now, you know, to their credit, but like now around our dinner table, you know, we have a 15 year old and the places where we go now, I'm like, whoo, this, this would have been really edgy talking about this with my parents. But there was a lot of humor. My, my, you know, particularly my father, he's a, he's a funny guy. And so that, that's there. And that's kind of in both my sister and me have a kind of left field sense of humor. And there was one other thing I was going to say, which I've forgotten. You know, I just remember, I just like, just memories come up. I remember uh, telling my grandma that burgers had cow's testicles in them, you know, like <laughs> as a very matter of fact, but kind of fun, you know, trying to be fun and, and just watching her reaction and, you know, seeing her kind of, and my parents looking at me and yeah, you know, that there was, you know, that kind of thing going on. So, yeah. I'm curious, you, you, ben, you mentioned it really quickly. What would have been, what's an edgy thing that you discuss at your current dinner table that you say, you know, oh, that would have been interesting to talk about when I was a child? Oh, yeah. You know, sexuality, drugs. Yeah. Altered, altered ex state experiences. 
kind of like critical race theory, kind of race race topics, uh, gender fluidity. I think a lot of these topics, which you know, they just weren't they just weren't alive in the same way when I was growing up. And you know, my uh, I have a fifteen year old in the house, and he's just growing up in a very different culture, where these things are part of his. You know uh, the the discussions going on amongst him and his friends. So, mm. so yeah, and there. You know, I mean, I live in the Netherlands, and my wife is Dutch, and there's a there's a, an openness to talking about these things that I can feel my edge with sometimes. You know, where I'm like, where I'm like, oh, are we gonna are we gonna really talk very openly about drug use right now? You know, is that wise? And so, but yeah, so those are some of the topics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sharing that. So my, my next question for you, Joel, is, is I think a two-parter. I'm interested in what you were like as a child. And mm-hmm. you named that your parents were both very liberal. And I imagine, I mean, I know enough about you that you didn't really feel like you were totally your full self as you came of age and maybe came into your adolescent years and maybe even into your 20s and maybe even 30s. I would be curious to hear just what were some of the ways that you didn't feel like you had permission to be you? I know those are kind of big questions, but. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing questions too. I I think like one way that stands out as I reflect is that I was quite cautious in, in a particular way. Uh, even maybe even I would use the word apologetic. So, you know, I, I would like if I was like entering into a particular space, I don't know, I'm kind of think off my head, but someone's house or, you know, um, a public space. Um, I was quite focused on um, not disrupting, you know, not kind of like, you know, slamming through the doors. And, you know, like, uh, I mean, this is funny because, you know, that even points to my own perhaps um interpretation of of like yeah what somebody might do if they weren't apologetic you know like slamming through the doors and stuff that's not what they do they just walk in and take up space so but that taking up space that was that was difficult for me growing up yeah and and actually has been something i've worked through my entire life and i i've definitely worked with that and it's it's released a lot but it's still it's still part of me you know it's it's a it's an incredible question, really, because for me, like adolescence, that was one of the pr- primary pains. Like, who, who am I? How, how? Like, what is it really to be me? To be free? To be me? And you know that that kind of um, transition from separating from parents, you know, and all the the cool ways they install or you know support you in in um, socializing. So you can function in the world and, and, you know, ideas from school, the way that they help you socialize all these, but then you're trying to, you know, you're, you're differentiating, you know, you're becoming more autonomous. And I found that quite a difficult time, actually painful. I think many teenagers do. Yeah. That's the main one that comes up. Yeah. Well, there's probably, there's probably a lot, a lot more to be said about that, you know? Um, But yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, it really resonates with, I think that if you asked me the same question, I probably would have a a version of the same exact answer that I grew up with two very liberal parents who 
highly encouraged me to be myself. And yet there was, I, I really grappled with what it meant to allow myself to take up space and to be seen. And in my teenage years, it felt like this, the tug of war between the parts of me that wanted to be seen and the parts of me that just wanted to hide and take up literally zero space. It, it felt like there was a war going on within me and I just didn't know what to do with that. And there's all sorts of stuff that we could talk about around what it means to be a, a male in the cultures that you and I were raised in and, and grappling with that around like the identity of masculinity. And it was just such a confusing period of time for me. And it sounds like it was for you too. And uh, yeah, I, I guess what, what comes up for you as I share that before I, there's a part of me that wants to move the conversation forward, but I feel like we're, we're onto something that could be important here. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking now about how could we better support people like ourselves. I mean, just, you know, any kind of adolescent, someone moving into adolescence, how could we better support them in that process? You know, cause I, I felt, I felt very isolated actually. I'm remembering back then I felt, I felt alone, you know, and, um, I, I, you know, you know, my father and I are much closer now and he's a, he's an amazing guy. And I always felt his love for me. And we, and somehow at times we weren't that close growing up and my mother, I did feel more close, but still, you know, when you're that age, you're, you, you're actually wanting to find your own way more too. I just remember feeling quite alone and that being very painful and just the thought of of having more guidance at that age, oh, you know, actually moves me right now. And to, I, I think that's lost a little bit, you know, like the, the, the ritual of moving into adulthood, uh, elders, people like that who could offer a kind of wisdom and they weren't your parents, you know? Yeah. 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 Rites of passage are sorely missing. That's a topic that I've discussed multiple times on this podcast is that, for men, there are, or boys becoming men, there aren't really clear rites of passage. And a lot of our formative or kind of years where we're in transition, at least for my, the way that I was raised, we spend it drinking, partying, maybe I wasn't the type to get in fights. I was always pretty gentle and cautious like you. But a lot of guys get into brawls and then next thing you know, you're kind of just thrust into adulthood without any clear rite of passage. And maybe the best attempts that we have at it right now are a bar mitzvah. I was raised Jewish, so bar mitzvah or confirmations. And uh, they just don't really seem like they're actually effective at helping a boy transition into what it means to become a man. And that, that's a very complicated subject that maybe we can talk a little bit about, but I want to, I want to put a pin in that for now. Sure. And I know that you, you were an artist and a DJ, maybe at the same time, I don't know what happened first, but I, I would love to hear what drew you to that. And from there we can get into, you know, what, why coaching and maybe some experiences that you had that helped you realize like, yes, this is, this is the thing that I was put on this planet to do. But let's let's start with, you know, what what was what informed your choice at first to be a DJ and an artist? Yeah, you know, I think it's 
that that's kind of who I am. You know, I actually find a lot of satisfaction and perhaps my genius could use that word lies more in creative mode of perception and exploration than, than, you know, I don't know, a rational logical one or different other types. So, you know, I was always enjoying making art when I was young and at school. And then I just, you know, I, as, as I think, I don't know if I've ever met anyone who doesn't like music, but maybe they are out there, but I just loved music and, and then, yeah, I heard about this thing called DJing and I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And my parents were really supportive. You know, my mom bought me my first pair of decks and I used to DJ upstairs in my house. And, you know, they they were so good with like, you know, I just crank up the volume and they let me do that. And, uh, you know, I just was exhilarated. I think this might tap into a thread that we talk about in our conversation quite a lot today, but I just came alive doing that mm. stuff, you know, and actually I was a phenomenal DJ and I don't, you know, I, I, I like saying that to you because it was true. Now, I know, I know there's a lot of phenomenal DJs out there and Manchester where I was DJing, it was a very rich culture of, of DJs and music. But I just, yeah, there was a, I just, and it was the same feeling, yeah? So whether I was in my art studio at university five days a week making art, or I was in the nightclub DJing, I was very lucky to start playing to crowds from a young age. I mean, I had a short-lived DJ career and I never, I was never famous or anything, but I was playing regularly to 600 to 1,000 people in a club, you know, last slot of the night. And it was the same feeling in each place. It was just that 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 attunement to the moment and to to uh, what was emerging in the moment, and how could I hold space in a particular way that there was a certain kind of eros, a certain kind of aliveness could can flourish and unfold even further, you know. And I was responding either to the canvas in front of me, you know, as I painted, I made installations and I painted. You know, and I would just attune to it. And then I would I would kind of get the scent, you know, Whew, okay, something's happening. And then, the, it, you know, the exhilaration would kick in and I would, it was a very embodied experience. I was, you know, I was made of my relationship to the art that was unfolding. And then the same thing in the, in the nightclub, you know, I was responding to the crowd and, you know, I wasn't one of these DJs that just stands there and DJ. One of my trademarks is I'll be going, come on, come on. <laughs> I'd be DJing like drum and bass music and I would be like, <laughs> you know, and the crowd would be like feeding off that and I would be feeding off them. And, you know, there's, there's certain, we can maybe get into this, but you know, that, that same experience actually was happening in coaching too not that i'm like going come on or anything with my <laughs> clients but yeah you know maybe we maybe we get into you know purpose and meaning and and stuff so I'll, I'll save that that connection for a bit later but yeah 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 for me sport was the thing that you know and you when you were demonstrating what made you come alive and that that energy of just that unbridled like i i don't have to wear a mask and i don't have to look a certain way and, and the way that we're socialized and all of that, when you could just let out that energy, that is to me, that's a version of aliveness. Like I got the image of a basketball player making a, making a shot, getting fouled. And a lot of times they just turn to the crowd and they just go, ah, you know, like they, 
they really let out all of that energy and yeah, music and sport really have that effect on people. I, I would be curious to hear, like you really sounded like you came alive doing that and yet it was a short lived element of your career, a short chapter. What, where did it feel like it wasn't aligned or what was, you know, what, what happened within you that you knew that you maybe needed to, like, I know you went to India at one point and mm. what was that calling or yearning or, or the thing that was missing? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great question. It's, you know, it was, it was hedonistic. I mean, I was, you know, I was only DJing for maybe three years, four years, you know, to that, to that kind of consistency of playing in those nightclubs. And I was, yeah, I mean, I made art for longer and, but um, basically it was, it was, it was hedonistic. There's quite a lot of drugs and sex and, and that was great, but until it wasn't. And, you know, the drugs in my life, I think at that age, you know, also mushrooms that would grow in the fields around the hills where I grew up, you know, we were like, bloody hell, as teenagers, we were like, is this like for real? Like you could just go pick these magic mushrooms. And, you know, they, they again, we had, we didn't have any intentionality around those experiences, which I, which I do now, if I ever go there, but they were still, they were still powerful, potent, actually accelerators or uh, catalysts for, for something in my life. But anyway, there was also a hedonistic negative side to it too. And what happened basically was I, you know, I just woke, I mean, literally I woke up one morning and burst into tears and I was like, Whoa, like, where did that come from? And I just, in, in that moment, I made the decision to sell all my records and go to India. And, you know, I should, I should say, like leading up to that, the the months leading up to that, I'd also become interested in Buddhism and Krishnamurti, and yeah. So so there was a there was a you know it wasn't just like out of nowhere, but like that decision just came clearly, decisively, and there was never any second guessing that decision after that. So that's that's you know, and and basically, I what happened was I'd hurt I'd hurt someone that I was with in a relationship. And, you know, that had impacted our friendship group. It impacted her a lot. I, I was deeply ashamed and remorseful. And, you know, I was young and stupid and I didn't really know who I was anymore. You know, I was like, I just feel something's off and I need a change. I need to go on an exploration. And so I did sell all my records and, you know, I, I'd never been good at saving money. And I remember, I remember I just like worked and saved up loads of money. You know, that was the other. I was like, weird. It's like suddenly I had all these thousands of pounds in my bank. And I was like, how did that happen? Anyway, set me up to go on this trip to India. And that's what I did. And that was very potent, that trip. It was a formative. You know, I see back on my life, there's a thread and there's these moments. I don't know if you have this, Mike, and the listeners listening. There's these moments where you make a choice and it's like almost like time slows down mm -hmm. and you, you, you just make it, or maybe the choice makes you even it's like, boom, that's how it feels. And it's done. The choice is made. And then you do it, you do that thing and you see, it's almost like that's a, you know, you see your, your life taking off on a different thread than how it could have. And that happened to me in India as well. Yeah. 
I would love to keep going on this thread. What were like, what was so potent about being in India? I'm sure there were many things, but what were some of the experiences that you had there? Yeah, I mean, I, I did a Buddhist pilgrimage. I spent quite a lot of time in Bodh Gaya where the Buddha got enlightened. I went to Vulture's Peak where he uh, delivered, I think it's the Diamond Sutra. You know, these amazing places. There's a lot of Tibetans around and just Buddhists from around the world. And I was staying, staying there on a kind of little Buddhist community. And anyway, that was all cool. But what happened was I went to Dharamsala and then I basically came out of meet, a meeting with the Karmapa, you know, like you, there was loads of people there. And there was these two English, oh, actually two men there who were in a relationship and they were traveling around India, kind of like checking out and testing gurus. And they, they were talking to my friend and I kind of went over and then we were talking and one of them said, well, why, why, why do you want to like, you know, cut yourself off from life and put yourself on the mountainside? And I just remember I got really triggered. I was like, I was like, what, what, you know, the way, something about the way he said it. And I was like, oh, just give me a second. And I walked off and I, I remember I was like, bloody hell, what happened there? I, like, that was a strong reaction. Either I can get away from these guys or I can spend time with them and find out what happened. And that's what I did. And these two men were, you know, they were, they introduced me to a lot of different types of spirituality uh, Advaita Vedanta, the Marks and Spencer's guru, and I can never remember his name, an English guy. And basically, I was like, oh, what's all that? And they were like, it was all the direct path teachings. Yeah, I'd been like a good Buddhist on this trip, meditate hard for years, maybe lifetimes, and you might get awakened. And then, you know, there, suddenly I was reading these teachings, which were saying any effort you make takes you further away from the truth of who you really are. Uh, you're already awake. You know, all practice is a fallacy, and I, I, you know, I was just like, "What the fuck?" Like, it just, it just short circuited something. I, and what happened? I came out from an internet cafe. This was in the days when you had to, like, you know, go in an internet cafe. And I was like reading these rudimentary websites of teachings. I went on the mountainside, and something just popped. You know, and I had a unity experience. You know, a sense of separation between myself. And the world disappeared and i just felt incredible joy and i just started laughing and it was an amazing experience and it was very temporary it lasted you know 90 minutes or something before it kind of wore off i remember i i still is weird i kind of just i was like oh it's my yoga class now and i tried to go and sit in this yoga class and i i just couldn't because i was just laughing and you know, I could, and I, but I had no self consciousness. I just remember getting up and walking off and saying, sorry, you know, I wasn't like an ass. Anyway, this thing, this experience wore off quickly. And then I just fell into an existential depression because I was like, and these, you know, you might recognize this. I'm curious to know about this in your life in a minute. You know, it's like my old identity of like being a good Buddhist, you know, gradually enlightening, uh, awakening. And then suddenly I was like, well, that's all pointless or what do I do now? And so I felt quite, quite down actually, and I was struggling. And then the cool thing is, and this is kind of a longer story, but it, it it's quite amazing what happened actually. So I thought these two guys have ruined my life, you know, they're, they're uh, vampires. That's what I remember thinking they're like, they're vampires. If, you know, they came in and they, the last person they mentioned to me was Ken Wilbur, 
And by this point, I was like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with who you recommend to me anymore. So I got back to England. I was on a retreat there that I'd already booked outside. It was in nature. And I came out of the meditation tent one day and I like stubbed my toe on this book and it was Ken Wilber, No Boundary. And I was like, fuck, that's that guy they mentioned. Shit. And so I kind of ran off, you know, through the field to the to the canteen. Of course, like the next day I sit down and it's on the table in front of me. And then, you know, there was like, I think the third day I sat down and it was like next to a person I was talking to. So I was like, all right, well, that's a sign. So I then bought a Ken Wilber book and he just like answered all these deep existential questions I had one by one. And I just was lit up like a Christmas tree for, for months. And I became kind of annoying to my girlfriend at the time. She was like, if you just, if you talk about Ken Wilber one more time, I'm going to take that book and throw it out the window. And, you know, I, you know, that I got over my Ken Wilber obsession kind of at some point, but yeah, you know, these guys, suddenly I was like, wow, there was a huge transformation that took place in both my practice and my sense of self through that phase. And suddenly I was like, these guys are like bodhisattvas, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, it was rough, but potent what happened. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Thanks for uh, bearing with me there. That was a bit, a bit of a longer answer, but. Hey, I'm here for all of the long answers. I, I block off lots of time on this and no need to ever apologize for a really long answer because I am here for all of it. I thought that was full of insight. I'm curious to hear, well, it, and you did name at one point that you wanted to maybe bounce something back my way. I, I don't know if that's still up for you. Yeah. But... I, yeah. I just, I'm just curious for you, you know, have there been those moments in your life where, yeah, you know, you felt kind of a serious rupture in in sense of self. I don't think everybody gets that. You know, I think some people it's just gradual, gradual, gradual. I've certainly had a few of those big ruptures in my life. I'm just wondering mm. if you resonate with that. I do. It feels like more of a combination for me that it is gradual. Like in some ways I feel existential what the hell is the point of all this on a, a regular basis, right? It's like, it, it feels like the things that light me up and that I'm drawn to are so big that I just am like, what, what, what do I even do here? And I, I would say a lot of my development in the past few years has been not linear, but pretty incremental. And I've had the good fortune of working with a coach that I see every two weeks. And so a lot of the time when life feels like it's too big for me, I could just bring that into a session and he holds a beautiful space for me where I feel just more grounded in being able to hold that in me where, and my, and my connection to nature feels aligned to this too, where I feel in terms of unity that we're not separate from nature. I, I think of myself when life feels too big as let's just say a river or a tree, that we don't need to solve anything. There's no problems that we need to solve. We just need to be able to move with life. And when I think of myself in that way, it is very grounding that I don't, I don't need to solve for all of these things. And there are problems and there are real realities in the world that are unjust and inequitable in my estimation that I want to contribute to. But if I can just 
be with that instead of trying to fix it, which I know resonates with you, then it kind of melts away. Now, I'll, I'll say that yeah. that happens on, I don't know, at least a weekly basis that I, I think of something that's like, oh my God, how can, how can I go on? There's like so many people suffering in the world. And I'd say to maybe address the original question, do I have any particular experiences where that felt like it all came to a head? I, my background, you wouldn't know this, my listeners probably do at this point, but my background is in accounting. And I worked at a pretty big company for the first five or so years of my career. And I remember when I first started to get into personal development, there were a couple of different podcasts that I got into. One of them was Impact Theory. And I was, the way that you described Ken Wilber being like, gotta shut up, man, like stop talking about Ken Wilber. I was like that with impact theory. I just, I saw Dr. Joe Dispenza and I got in touch with people like Jay Shetty. And there were so many different people that it was like Wim Hof, like, oh my God, this is, I can't believe this exists. And I needed to tell everyone about it. And it engaged me at my intellect, but not, I just didn't have the capacity to actually internalize that, you know, from my state of consciousness at that point in time, it just made it so that I knew it existed, but I, I didn't know what to do with it. So I would say there was a point in the back end of my first job, my first professional job, where I just, like all of that was, I knew I wasn't meant to be in accounting and I would just go wild on LinkedIn with like, what the, f I need to find something that is right for me, but I, I don't have the skill set and I don't believe in myself. And it was a wild mess. And uh, there was one point where I still don't know what the accurate diagnosis would be, but there was a point where every time I ate something towards the very back end of my first job, I felt a, like I almost needed to curl over in pain. That's how mm -hmm. much it hurt. And doctors, you know, they gave me like gas X or omeprazole or, or something that would handle the symptom. But I do believe that on some level, the root cause was that I just felt like a, there was, I was so out of alignment I, and I didn't know what to do with all the energy of who am I, who do I want to be in this world? Can I handle the pain of letting go of all of the other things that aren't serving me right now? And that, that might've been my body's way of communicating to me, like we gotta, let's start making some forward motion. So at that point, I think was when I hired my first life coach. And, and from there, when I get in those darker places, I, I make sure that like, I've made a commitment to myself already, I'm going to work with a coach for the rest of my life. I just, even mm -hmm. when things feel really good, I, I just know how slippery a slope it can be for me, where if I'm not constantly getting those reps in, I can revert really quickly back to this is all meaningless let's just make this a personally fulfilling life it's those bigger things are too much for you mike don't worry about them so yeah i think that that's probably the biggest one and it, it is a regular thing for me but i i appreciate the invitation to speak about that because i don't think i have verbally processed that in this way before hmm 
Yeah, thanks for sharing. And I think there's a really potent sort of teaching and what you're sharing around alignment, you know, and and listening to to how you feel and uh, the the body, your body is such a important intelligence. It has this intelligence, you know, and it will tell you immediately or or very quickly in this way, you know, in a cute way for you when things are not going, you're not in alignment with your life, you know, and I think the body is also an incredible resource. We are living in times where it can be overwhelming with a sense of like, oh my God, there's so many things up right now. How do we respond to that? What's my place in the world? What's my music to be played in this lifetime? So these are really important questions. And I think just one other thing, like, you know, a life a life coach or whatever kind of coach you work with, you know, when you're feeling great, that's even maybe sometimes the best time to work with yes. them as well. So, yeah, I would encourage people in that way. Yeah. I, I think about the saying, the best time to fix your roof is when the sun is already shining a lot. Right. Because there's definitely, I don't know what it is about humans, but a lot of times we don't, we don't make the leap until we're in a lot of pain. Even if the leap is a small one, like investing to just say, I want to work with a coach because my life is really good, but I want to make it amazing or my life is amazing. And I know that I'm unfinished, which we all are (laughs) forever unfinished. And so I, knowing that about myself and about humanity, it just seems like a no brainer. But I come most alive when I'm doing all these things. Why would I stop doing them? Mm. Yeah. So from here, Joel, I would love to hear, and I don't know the timing around like when you went to India, when you sold all your records, but I know that you started Coaches Rising in 2009. And man, so much has changed in those, in the past 13, 14 years since then. I guess we could just start with what brought you into coaching and what was the landscape of coaching in 2009? Yeah, I mean, I I come back from India and got into Ken Wilber and uh, got into psychology. People like Robert Keegan, developmental psychology. Mm-hmm. So I and then I uh, was practicing Buddhist at the time. Don't really consider myself that anymore, but still love the 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 lineage of Buddhism. And uh, I met uh, a guy who I actually moved in with. Uh, we were kind of like, there's a few guys that lived in one house and we practiced together. And uh, he he was like, oh, uh, I'm a coach. And uh, I work with, you know, executives and leaders and I coach them. And yeah, I was like, well, that sounds amazing. And it, so coach, it was just immediately uh, resonant with me. Coaching could kind of con- include spirituality, psychology. And I I think what I realized was that, you know, for a few years, I've been working as a community artist, working with uh, refugees and young offenders and all kinds of groups of people. And what I realized was I'm not an amazing artist per se, but I am great at getting people to create. And so uh, that, that kind of skill for me was transferable into coaching. So, yeah, you know, I just fell in love with this thing called coaching. And, uh, you know, the landscape back then, it's a good question because in a way, you know, coaching has been around for, I don't know, 50 years in various forms, maybe longer. I think, you know, since the 80s, it started to 
kind of take off in a more substantial way. So I, I, I guess I was, you know, in 2009, I was still kind of acclimatizing to the, to the field. There was certainly some schools that I really resonated with, like Integral Coaching Canada and, and Newfield, um, places like that. And so, yeah, I think, I think a lot has changed, obviously. And I think the coaching industry is maturing and we're asking big questions now about the future of coaching. How can coaching be relevant in these times, you know, when everything is changing and what kind of, yeah, ways in, I think maturity, uh, David Drake, a, I call him a friend of mine, you know, I think that's what we've become, but we certainly interact and I really like the guy and, you know, he's talking about what kind of maturities do coaches need to develop in these times. And I like that. I like that frame because yeah, there's a lot, a lot going on. Uh, but back then in 2009, I think the thing that struck me was there was a lot of idealism. I met my co-founder, Lawrence, in Amsterdam. So I'd moved to Amsterdam and we connected around a love of coaching. And there was a lot of idealism uh, between us. And we started the business. We didn't really know anything about running a business, but we cared about having an impact in the world. And that kind of fueled us to go forward. And the thing that I remember back then was it was like the sense of the future's coming, you know, and we felt very optimistic about it. And that changed <laughs> at some point, the, like the optimism changed. But what I'm talking about is the sense of the future coming. I don't know, it was maybe about five years ago, six years ago. I can't remember when, but it was, I was like, the future's here. Mm-hmm. I was like, the future's not coming anymore. The future's here. It's like, it's it's and it was a palpable felt sense of the future emerging or being here right now, which might sound strange, but uh it certainly still feels true to me. Time for me, I feel like we one of the things we're actually moving through right now is our relationship to time itself, you know, and and um, you know, our relationship time is money, the singularity, time never enough time, you know, and perhaps there's a you know, um, an invitation being made for us to grow around that relationship to time. But anyway, I think, and I, so I think that that sense of the future being here was part is part of this shift. And um, yeah, I, 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 and I think I don't feel as optimistic or as idealistic as I felt back then. Part of that is my age, and part of it is, yeah, you know, things are pretty. Everything's to play for right now. Some people think. It isn't really to play for. We kind of locked into certain decline. I'm not sure, but they have good arguments. Yeah. So from here, you know, emergence has come up in in some way or another a couple of times now, and I know that your coaching is very presence based and emergent possibility based, and. You know, in, in a lot of ways, saying something like the future is here right now is just an acknowledgement that it's everything is already happening. And the relationship with time that you named is that, you know, the past is coloring your present and the future is already kind of there, there's a way that our minds can't possibly grasp that time isn't this linear kind of march on, make incremental things happen. It's it's all influence. The past is influencing the present, which is influencing the future, and the future is kind of influencing the past. And anyway, I wonder I wonder how you hold all of that in a coaching session. Like what what does emergence 
mean to you and, and what's it informed by? Yeah, in a really practical way, the, the difference is uh, I'm often starting with what's here now. Mm -hmm. And there's an attitude of uh, we're not trying to fix anything. We're not necessarily even trying to get anywhere. That being said, of course, things do unfold. People grow. There is there is an overarching desire to to kind of grow, and people have desires to you know become more of who they are. So that's all there. But in the moment with the client, it's about embracing what's here right now. Even when we talk about their future, and we say, "Well, you know, this future desire you have." what happens when we connect to that right now? Mm -hmm. Maybe they start to feel certain parts arise that, that say, are you, you're not worthy enough to have that. You know, they're not allowed. Maybe they feel contractions in their body. And all that can be met, you know, with this, this certain embrace, you know. And, and I think presence is really key in that because it's, a, for me, it can be a, a healing factor, you know, in that if, all I've known is, you know, we talk about parts, you know, there's kind of all therapeutic systems like internal family systems, which I think are really beautiful that, you know, there's these parts inside of us, uh, different parts that have, that have kind of come as we grew up. And if all we've ever known is that we're, we are those parts, you know, and often one part polarizes with another part, you know. So if all I've ever known is, for example, oh, I feel apologetic. You know, uh, I feel cautious going in this space, uh, and then and then another part comes up and says, "No, you shouldn't be like that. You should just be free and bold." Yeah, and mm -hmm. and and so you know that part's now attacking the other part, and they're polarizing from. And I think that's how a lot of people approach their own growth and development. They feel a certain kind of deficiency, mm -hmm. and then they come in and they go like, uh, "You know, hey, I don't like that deficiency. Uh, I've got to be better. I've got to be more worthy." Uh, and and but they're identified with another part. So presence is this, you know, if we separate from these parts and then we can be with them from this place of presence, then that presence can offer those parts an unconditional regard, positive regard in a way that parts can't do. It's that it's that unconditional positive regard those parts didn't receive or we didn't receive as a child when we were growing up. To no fault of our parents, you know, we're all we're all kind of evolving in this rich tapestry, this system of you know uh, the evolution of life, and we work with what we are, you know. And each generation seems to be, you know, becoming freer from past traumas. Anyway, so yeah, this this unfolding, this embrace of where we are, being with what's here, allows like the next thing to unfold. And there's a Last thing I'd say is there's this intelligence of life that kicks in. It's organic and it's it's got an eros inside of it, this life force that is just not the same thing as if you're deploying mechanically uh, a process or you're trying to develop from A to B in a structural way. Yeah. So it brings up an example actually that I learned in one of your courses, The Power of Embodied Transformation. David Trelevin gave this a, a visual, so the listener won't be able to see this, but I'll do my best to describe it. Because what, what I'm hearing from you is basically 
self-love and from from the highest version of you there aren't you don't need to fix the part of you that's scared of being seen or that you know wants to make a ruckus and go out there so in david trelevin's example he shows he makes a really tight fist and with the other hand he says all right like imagine if you were to take a part of yourself and we'll call that your right hand and just try and jerk it around like what happens to your left hand it naturally see even without me being conscious of it my left hand tightened up so what what happens is that if we try and kind of really yank our part somewhere it doesn't want to go it it might calcify or even strengthen its position we we don't want to be yanked in a direction whereas if we bring a kind of gentler approach so if my right hand has a soft hold to it which we'll call maybe presence or love the the left hand that tight fist just loosens up and i think about that all the time with regard to because my pattern internally is definitely like we've got places to go we've got big things that we want to achieve let's we don't have time to be scared let's let's put ourselves out there and i think you know maybe there's a time and a place for like let's just show up and we'll we'll get to do the oh, sure. for our parts yeah there is and you know for me the biggest source of my development has been really allowing my parts that i have historically disliked or even hated to be seen and give them space to show up as they are without trying to do anything, fix anything. And I, I guess the paradox of it is for me, it's it, it allows for the, the place that you want to go to emerge more efficiently and with more ease anyway. <laughs> exactly. Brilliantly said. So important. It's more effective, you know, and it's faster anyway. Because the other way doesn't really work, you know. If you can feel like it's working at points, but it doesn't tend to get to the root of things. And something you, something that I think is really important is, like presence for me is is as a state or a mode, you know, of open awareness, which is inclusive and embraces what's here. And we, I think we all, even you know, even if we're not meditators will if you point towards this experience with people they 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 know it you know they do we do have that in our lives and the key here is that it's it transcends but includes conceptual notions like self-love yeah which is i think you're totally right like presence enables a kind of self-love to come online that wasn't there before but if we if we impose a conceptual idea of self-love you know, and then we go, oh, I've got, to, I've got to love myself right now. But actually, we don't feel in love with ourselves. We feel like quite in touch with like a sense of judgment or hatred even. Then, then, then we're, again, we're playing this game of imposing, you know, and maybe that, maybe that idea of self-love is coming from a part again with an agenda, a change agenda. So yes. that, that whole mechanism that you're beautifully describing doesn't quite kick in. So, so, you know, the, the mode in that moment might be like, oh, you know, it's just this noticing like, oh, if I just acknowledge right now, yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a lot of self judgment, critic, criticism towards myself. You know, and then we might be like, well, you know, is that okay for that to be there? Not again. And it could be yes or no. It might be like, 
yeah, okay, I can, yeah, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And again, we might immediately we might notice a sense of relaxation, but we might then say, actually, no, and I, I, I notice I don't like criticizing myself. I, I, I like, I really don't like it. And we're noticing more parts of ourselves. And we could then go, well, let's just acknowledge that. Let's include that. You know, there's a there's a criticizing of oneself here, and there's a criticizing of the criticizing. Mm-hmm. Let's just notice that. You know, and is that is that okay? We just include that, and you know, often quite quickly, people will get to like, oh yeah, because they they feel like, oh, I don't. It's not about changing myself here. I'm just kind of noticing what's happening inside of me, and this presence starts to come online more. You know, they become more spacious as they as they separate from these different beliefs or parts. Mm-hmm. It reminds me, and I know that you're familiar with the work of the Conscious Leadership Group, There's, their model is, which I think is a really simple one, if, if folks that are tuned in right now don't have a foundation, above the line being open, curious, compassionate, maybe present and loving, below the line, reactive, triggered. And the question that they would ask is, where are you now? Or where am I now? If you're asking to yourself, am I above the line or below the line? And if we could just notice that we are below the line, The next question is, can I accept myself for being exactly where I am? And a lot of times for me, it is no, I I cannot accept that I am reactive and triggered. And that's that's a good invitation to maybe do parts work is another, you know, internal family systems is something that I have used a lot for my own inner work. And it's an invitation to, you know, like, I think that it's easy to identify that the end, the quote unquote, I'll put air quotes, end goal is to just love all your parts. And that I have, (laughs) there's like a meta competency of, well, I I have a part that understands all of this now and just wants to be, all right, just self-love guys, we're all good. Like, and then we can move on because that part now has an agenda that it wants to get somewhere. And I, we might be losing listeners a little bit here, but I think it could be helpful to understand that we know real presence there is no agenda to go anywhere even even if the part sounds like it's got really good intentions and is saying self-love we all know what it means to really be in a moment where we don't feel like we need to do anything or go anywhere and what feels possible in moments like that and yeah i just i I guess i just wanted to name that does anything come up for you yeah yeah one thing I would add, and I'm then willing to go like where you want to take us, is you know saying like, I do think presence wants to go somewhere sometimes, mm-hmm. but but you're saying something really really important, which is like yeah, presence doesn't have an agenda per se with these parts, you know, with the react where we get reactive and stuff. But once we, I, so we disidentify from parts and if we, but then if presence kicks in, presence can take all kinds of qualities like self-love, strength, you know, spaciousness, peace, uh, these kind of qualities that I think we're all familiar with that can really, and then we become that. We don't want to disidentify from that. We become these qualities and that there's often a wisdom inside of that presence. There's a movement, you know, there's a, there's a skillful action. There's an uh, there's an expression, you know. So that that's what I found in my life is that oh yeah, it's been very rich to transition and struggle and fail and still work with parts, but to increasingly 
access presence where there is a, a different type of action which comes through. So, yeah, yeah. And it cares, presence cares, you know, it responds to people in pain and suffering or, you know, that kind of thing. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, thank you for naming that. <clears throat> so, from here, I think I want to connect a couple of different dots that we've started to we, we've placed them on the table and i'm, I'm wanting to connect them a, a little bit i know that you named at one point in this conversation that you didn't have really a great relationship with saving money and as a dj you you started you you finally saved up enough that you could afford to go to india and when you started coaches rising in 2009 there it doesn't sound like you knew that much about, <laughs> I want to be careful about how I phrase this, but it didn't sound like you really knew what you were doing. You, like you were kind of, you knew what you wanted to do, but you didn't have the skills of what, what does it take to build a business? And I think given where you're currently sitting, there's so many different things that have influenced your development. And it could be around your relationship with money. It could be around just what it takes to be responsible for I don't know, your, your community of coaches at this point is must be thousands and thousands of people that you're supporting. And I, I guess the question behind all of this is what other influences have you had or developmental modalities have had the biggest influence on you kind of building your capacity to from presence, like this is where I am, this is where, this is what maybe presence tells me I, where I wanna go. Like what have been the ways that have been most influential in your development? Yeah, so I, you're right. And I don't uh, mind you saying we didn't <laughs> know what we were doing at all. You know, so I think just one, before I get into some different modalities, one life I think is just such a huge teacher mm -hmm. for us all. And that's a cliche, but you, so it was, you know, putting myself in the arena of, owning a business and yes, a business wants to generate income so it can fulfill its purpose. And, you know, people buy things they find valuable. So there's a good, there's a good kind of fit there. And I was failing at that in the beginning quite spectacularly. And, uh, but staying in that arena and, and that being formed by that encountering my own, you know, lack of experience, um, my own sense of deficiency in that, and and staying with that and meeting it, that's what that was huge in transforming my relationship with with money and, and and building a successful business. So you know, I would encourage anybody to just take that step, you know, and step into that arena because that's what will form you. You know, once you make that decision, it brings certain things into focus, you know, and other things not, you know. So, and then you work with those things. So I, I think um, if I look back, you know, some things are maybe a bit edgy to share. Like, so one thing, one thing that a modality that for sure had an impact was my Qigong practice, my Qigong teacher. So, you know, work and, and um, my Qigong practice was quite focused on developing Qi, on energy. And, uh, you know, I was kind of skeptical about that in the beginning, but that really supported me in, in creating a kind of integration in my body and in kind of helping release certain patterning 
and um you know so that that that's been huge um so working with all those things i told you about when you're in the arena and you're getting stressed i remember we created our first product and you know i thought we'd sell thousands of units and then we sold like seven and i was like living out my pennies jar you know this pennies jar and i was kind of buying food from that so qigong was was incredibly important to me i think i think you know another thing was when i started working with my sexuality that that was again really important you know in some ways it's 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 hard to say exactly what had an impact because you know it seems like things have a correlation yeah and they all add up you know in if they're into the mix you know so they're all having an influence but I started going on tantric retreats, some where they were quite sexually explicit and work with Kundalini energy. And, you know, I have kind of mixed feelings about some of those retreats now in terms of the gold that was there. And in terms of some of the things that are just experiences and I wouldn't put myself in again, but I certainly felt that they, my relationship to power, I think that's the key here. I started to access a kind of power that was uh, felt great, you know, and I think had an influence. And, 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 you know, all the time we were learning about business and and starting to make smarter decisions, you know, around, yeah, how to be successful. And I think just one other thing is, it's kind of, there's a luck element too, you know, like you, you start something up and it works out and you do the right thing in the right moment, you're in the right place, but it's not down to individual brilliance per se. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question here, but yeah, you are, and, and I and I feel like there's more, so I want to keep pushing yeah. a, a little bit Do because it. I, I know yeah. that there's there's plenty of things that influence the way that you've built a capacity to have a, a business that is really thriving now, and I guess I've I've heard you speak to kind of like Rich Litvin is someone who has influenced you in having a playing a bigger game and stepping into playing a bigger game and given the context of what we've spoken about there's there's a way that you could effort your way into playing a bigger game that you could just like you your mind can see like oh wow rich is charging a hundred grand for a year of coaching with him so i'm just going to step into that you know next time i enroll a client i'm going to say out loud a hundred thousand dollars and i imagine that for you the the playing the bigger game has been it's you've built that capacity over time and i so those i'm sure that what you've already named has helped you in some ways start to just feel more there's the embodiment component of you just feel more at ease with what's happening within you and more and maybe more trust is emerging but i'd be curious just like yeah, what has helped you step into I'm playing I'm playing a big game here and there I know that adult development theory has influenced you that there's a million different things but yeah. Yeah, I think the, the, it's interesting you bring in adult development theory and Rich Litvin. There's and you know we've been talking a lot about being with what's here. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 that that perhaps can have a feel of like passivity to it, you know. Maybe people are listening and they're like, "Okay, well, but the the desire piece i think is really important and i would say you know rich litvin i you know respect a lot you know he he's very 
potent at helping people kind of enter into their own power and he, he him and others and adult development theory also kind of points to the constructed nature of reality yeah and so you know we start to fit that together with desire it's like there's another side to yeah there's there's the being with what's here but there's also yeah what what is it what do i feel called to create you know and if you know in 10 years from now if extraordinary things were happening in my life you know this is a great exercise to write down your extraordinary an extraordinary day in your life in extreme detail from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed and in 10 years from now in 5 years from now and it um you will you will tune into something really important and i think you know the law of attraction has many it's very easy to poke holes at and the, but there's something in this the power of intentionality and what's really important i think is that at some point we start to recognize the and this is what happened for me is like it's constructed yeah so mm-hmm. actually i'm living within a box of what i perceive i'm allowed to have mm. you know and i've inherited that box from my culture and my family but what's outside of that box so you know one of the questions i often ask my clients is what do you want and what else and actually rich litvin is you know i, I stole this from him what what else do you want and what else you know because people people will start to say things that they have said before and at some point they start to kind of get to the edge and then you get to some interesting places where they start to tune into something they haven't said before so for me it just became incredibly liberating at some point where i was like oh yeah and i think the thing is once you start to get a bit of success it creates more ease it's kind of all you know chicken and egg it supports one another so you get a bit of success and then you you you're exhilarated by that and you see the impact you're having money comes in and you feel more at ease and then and then that you know when you're more at ease you feel more creative you tap into your genius more and then you're you're starting to see like wow we you know we created that thing we envisioned and it worked you know so why don't we envision that and then you you try that out you you have some failures along the way but you you really start to feel like oh i can i can keep playing around with what i would like to create and there's an incredible exhilaration that can come in now i want to say this and i think this is important if that's that like you said that 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 sometimes that can have an efforting side of it it can also have kind of suffering in it so it needs a balance yeah cuz you know why do you need more and more or bigger and bigger yeah are you, is it coming from a place of like does it does it emphasize the gap from where you are now to that place and that and that gap is actually suffering or is it coming from a different place is it coming from a place of fullness and wholeness where you're like oh i feel really great about my life right now and yeah there's like there's other stuff coming in that i feel i want to create and that's a very different feeling so yeah i think that that kind of that's what started to happen in my life is i just became more and more comfortable in a way i cared the less i cared about making money the more money i started to make mm-hmm. and yeah the more free i felt to to dream and and i think the last thing i'll say is at some point though you just hit the limits of like me creating my life it becomes a little bit dissatisfying if there's not a surrender to what does life want with me that's where 
that's a whole other conversation, basically. What does life want with me? Yeah. Hmm. You set it up perfectly for me to ask you. What do you do you sit with that question on a is that a daily practice that you ask, what does life want from me? I, I know that my coach asks me very frequently, what does the universe want you to be? And I, yeah. I sit with it. I I look at those as almost one in the same. What shows up for you when you ask yourself a question like that? Or you could share a, a client example, whatever feels right to you. Yeah, I for me, that's a very potent question. And it's not one I try and answer immediately with mm -hmm. logic, like, oh, what does life want with me? Oh, okay. You know, you can't go, you can't be too tight with it. Yeah. It's actually kind of a koan. And you, mm -hmm. what I find is if I say it and I sit and then I listen and I don't have a demand on what will happen, if anything will happen. And then I might say it again. And then after some time, I might say, and I start to tune into something. Often with me, it comes through uh, body sensations. So I remember a time not long ago where I was asking that question and I would feel my heart activating a lot. And that was incredibly meaningful to me, that experience. It, it meant something to me on a non-rational level. And it took me some time to to begin to to work with that experience this isn't some it's not like a five-step process that happens in half an hour you have to it's like a different yeah you know you know you're working in a different realm so and what happened to me one night you know i just woke up and this phrase bringing the light of god down into people's hearts mm. was ringing in my head and I, you know, I was like, whoa. And I just knew I didn't need to write down. I went back to sleep. I woke up three or four more times with that same phrase, bringing the light of God down into people's hearts, ringing. And then I woke up in the morning. It was still there, you know? So it kind of, it can start to come in that way, you know, when you're, yeah, it's not, it's not through the rational mind per se. And so I do, I don't ask that question every day, but there might be periods where I ask it every day. And it's certainly something that I'm orienting my life to as well, you know, on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the chills from that. Mm. And there's a, I laughed at one point in acknowledgement of the way that sometimes when I ask that question, my mind is, you know, yelling at the universe to give me the answer. Like, I'm ready for it. Don't tell me what, tell me what you want me to be. I'll do it. And there is that that surrender that you named where you, if you can ask it without really any attachment to what might happen, it's again that the paradox there of you can ask the question, really letting go that maybe nothing comes through and that's okay, is it seems like that is when it is more likely that you'll have some level of information. And the heart beating faster or opening in some way really it resonates with me too. And and then there's there's still a way in which my mind was like, all right, well, like, what does that mean? We gotta we gotta codify this. We gotta figure out what that means. And man, the the practice of just allowing that to be without doing anything it's it's what we've been speaking a lot about in this conversation. Where if we don't try and take it anywhere and can just be with our experience, then it seems like you're more open to hear. I want to be the light that, what, can, you, can you say it again? The, uh, bring, bringing the light of God down into people's hearts. Yeah. I'm still working with that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's still revealing itself to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I want and, to and you know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to well, say what you're doing at, at Coaches Rising. I, I've, 
many times listened to conversations and, and felt that in the care that you bring to the work. So I just want to name that I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And that's how it, that's how it starts to show up, you know, like for people listening, you know, sometimes, yeah, you know, what you said, Mike, is really beautiful in that sometimes you're just like, I want to know, you know, and that's okay too. Like, yes. I think, you know, it's like, God, yes, yeah, sometimes that's what you are. Yeah. I want to fucking know now. Come on. And you can feel a longing inside of yourself to know. And that's beautiful, huh? Like to feel that longing. I think the thing is for me that if I was coaching someone in that moment, what I would do is I would be like, oh yeah. And, and, and do you feel like there's something wrong with you right now? Like, oh, I want to know. And I should know. And I feel deficient right now because there's another way where you could go like, oh, I want to know. And I feel like, I feel frustrated, but I feel this longing. And you're like, well, let's just feel that longing together. Wow. You know, and then something might come out of that. And it's, it's an orientation like you're already whole right now. Everything's here. It's, it's just coming. It's, it's coming. Yeah. So there was something else, but it's gone anyway. So, and, and, you know, the other, yeah, the last thing is this can all sound kind of mystical. And I think there is something mystical to all of this. And I want to say to people, it's like, there's also, it's just happening all the time. You know, you, you go somewhere and you, you feel passionate about something, you know, and that's, that's it, you know, follow that passion. It doesn't have to be esoteric. It's like, Oh, I'm really into this book. Like, what is it in that book that you're reading that you love to do? Or like, I suddenly care about painting, you know, and that's it too. Yeah. It, it, it's all the time speaking to us. So yeah, some people can be like overly concerned about getting it just right. You know, like I need to get it just like, what is the thing, the thing I'm here to be. And it, yeah, it's like, Oh, we can relax around that too. You know? Yeah. For whatever reason. And she's been top of mind lately. So that, Perhaps that's some reason, but I don't know if you're familiar with Liz Gilbert, the author of Sure, Red yeah, Life. yeah. She did the Artist Way, which is a really a, it's a book that's a twelve week program to help you get in touch with your creativity. And I think this ties in because sometimes there's something that's coming through us that we couldn't possibly explain why it is, but it just is. And I've heard her speak to when she first read The Artist's Way, she just kept writing about Italy. There was, she's like, I don't know, I want to learn Italian, I, something about Italy. And it eventually it emerged into her flagship book, Eat, Pray, Love. She went to Italy and then she went to India and she went to Bali. And there's a level of what I imagine is just trust that she had in the, this is happening in me for some reason, so I'm just going to follow it, that... Yeah, I guess it's it's just not possible if we try and plan for all the things. And I also love that you named, like, if we have a part of us that is planning for these things, like, meeting that with love is the the real black belts move there of like, yeah, let's just appreciate the the longing and the desire to solve this and fix this. That's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful way to hold space for someone. Mm. Yeah. So we've been focused a lot on the individual, which I think is a beautiful thing. And I'm also just curious as we move towards the, the back end of the conversation here, and I'm in no rush, but it, I guess we are towards the back end. How do you look at the role of coaching for, because I know that you think about the collective too, and the way that we're influenced by systems and 
and the way that systems were created by us and we can change them just as easily as, as we may, maybe not just as easily, but we made them in the first place, we have access to change them. So how do you look at coaching as an agent that can help with the, the collective or how do you look at it at, in terms of its role in society? It's a great question. I, I mean, I, I think, of course, the individual and the collective are, you know, co-arising. You know, we can we can separate them out, and that can be a useful distinction. But they're also, you know, part of the same thing. So, therefore, you know, I do believe that coaches have an important role to play in these times, and that that can have an impact on the system. I feel that. I used to feel more when I was younger, like, hey, coaches can change the world, you know? And I think there's a lot of idealism in that. And I still feel like, well, maybe I maybe I feel different now. I think I think the key role I see coaches playing is is in how do we support people to navigate these times, you know, when there's a lot of change, uncertainty. How do we support people to to find resilience and thriving and amazing leadership? And that that can, of course, uh, spill out into changing the systems. You know, I think the system, but I think the systems are changing anyway. And you know, it's it's a it's an inquiry I'm in right now myself. I was in a conversation yesterday with three people who, you know, have been meeting together for years, thinking about this kind of question and developmental theory. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was like, how, how much direct impact can we have, you know, in that strategic sense, you know, oh, I'm going to change this and that, you know, and I think it's been a kind of theme of our conversation and we were kind of questioning it. And I think, but I think for sure, you can't say that we'd have no impact, you know, for sure. Coaches, do have impact, extraordinary impact and change people's lives. And, but I think it's this kind of stewarding role, holding space. Uh, yeah. Helping people to, to kind of ground, thrive, collaborate. And, and in that sense, the systems. So, so yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking this out loud as I, as, as I say it for the first time, but it's, it's like, we're part of the, and in that sense where we actually are, part of the changing systems, you know, rather than because, because in that question, we could kind of almost make it sound like coaches are separate from the system yeah, and people are separate from the system. And then we coach the people and then they change, but no, we're all part of that, you know, interwoven network of a system that's changing anyway. You know, like if coaches didn't exist, it's not like the systems wouldn't change, but we're kind of saying no coaches can have a, a positive influence on the systems and the way they change when right now, you know, there's a lot of talk of existential threat. So that's a few thoughts that come up on that question. Yeah. And I appreciate there was a way that might, might come from in the question was that there it's the, the individual is separate from the system. And there's an acknowledgement, like we are, we are the system in, in a lot of ways. I mean, we're all, and I, I'm also in touch with the how just in one conversation with one person, the impact that that can have on the system too. And if we looked at, there's a way that I think a lot of folks disengage from the world because, which is something that I've spoke about earlier in this conversation, 
where it just feels the gravity of oppression and suffering just feels too big. And if we look at the impact that even just one conversation can have, like this one maybe, or like any conversation, like as soon as I leave this conversation and go speak to another person, we just there's a, a cascading effect that happens where just one interaction at a time, the system is always kind of being changed in that way anyway. It's always kind of just one interaction, one thing at a time. Yeah. And, I, you know, actually, I didn't didn't feel when you posed the question that you were, you know, say, coming from a position of like, mm. yeah, that things are separate. So I just want to, yeah, it's going to name that. And I think you're saying something really important right now, actually. It's for me, like one of the keys is like, yeah, yeah, we can kind of talk about the system and the collective and these global crises we face and changing the world and all these things. But actually, for me, the micro interactions we have, you know, everyday moments are just key. And in a way, that's what we have anyway. So yeah, that's where we can really show up and have an influence, and 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 yeah, everything's you know. I think I think that's what's part of what's going on is we're we're moving out of a worldview where where we kind of viewed everything as being separate, hyper individualized kind of worldview. You know, privileging the the individual to the loss of we, this we that we are. So what you speak into as you share that for me is fundamental, actually. It's going to be the one of the the things that if we can tend to that will will make a difference, will help us. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the shift from me to we seems essential if we're going to survive as a species and as a planet. Is there anything that we haven't discussed today that feels important for you to bring into the conversation? We've talked a lot about about a lot of really beautiful things. I'm glad we talked about meaning and purpose and passion, because I think those things are going to be important. And we've talked about community, about these, these sense of we and these interactions. I, can't, I think I think we I'm sure something will come up as soon as we we pivot to ending. But you know, one one thing I will end with. I don't know if this is the ending, but just I felt that weight of what the fuck is going on, you know, with the world. Um, I went through quite a serious kind of spiritual crisis a couple of years ago. And I think one of the instigating factors, you know, the other was doing a lot of meditation and the other was being in a pandemic and having a young daughter, but this way of like what's going on in the world. And and I think that I have compassion for people, basically. I think that's what I want to get to. It's like, and, and being together in community is important. I think it's an incredibly catalytic to grapple with these things and it can be difficult. So doing that in support, but still doing it, you know, is is rich and recognizing when you need time out. Yeah. Yeah. That's really key. It's like if you all you're doing is immersing yourself in, you know, existential threat and personal development stuff and everything, uh, and it's amping up your system, recognizing when do I need some time out? When do I need to go on a cycle or just have a break or 
go and have a beer, whatever it is to nourish yourself in that sense. I would just encourage people because, um, yeah, we're, we're dealing with a lot. Yeah. But I think the, the last thing I'd say is grappling with that can, can actually help us to find our music to play in these times, yeah. you know, to find our place from a humble place, you know, from like, we're facing a lot of grief and loss, and but that can bring out the the spirit of life that I think in the West we might have disconnected from, generally speaking. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful sentiment, and it's the interview is not yet over, but I in the in the end of the or towards the end of the interview, I like to ask a couple more rapid fire in nature questions. They do not need to be quick answers. In fact, some of these are, are pretty big questions. So take as much time as you need. But what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Two things just come up immediately and they're a bit cliched, but my daughter, you know, I mean, you know, she's also like, if you said like, what are everyday moments that like take away your joy? And it's like, well, <laughs> I might say my daughter too, when she's you know, having a tantrum or awake in the middle of the night again. But yeah, you know, you're, yeah, it's just, she's three and a half. So that, that age, you know, they're incredible. And the other one is just, again, it's kind of cliche, but just going outside and looking at the sky, looking at nature. I, I, I find myself, my, my mother was a gardener. She is a gardener. She loves her garden. She passionately loves these flowers that rev bloom in her presence and uh, growing up I was always like you know whatever gardening and I find myself more and more oriented to that to nature and gardening but yeah for me it's just a miracle and lights my heart up mm -hmm. yeah cliche nothing wrong with cliche cliche a lot of times could be very true and those I, I imagine those are moments where you feel very connected one question I was tempted to ask you was maybe some practices that help you feel like you're grounded and centered and the simple things of just seeing your child or being outside and getting your hands involved with the earth or even just being surrounded by the earth it can really help to let go of the you know like i i there's just too much for me to handle here it, it seems like yeah where do you feel most unfinished i know that this is a, a really big question but where do you feel most unfinished that's a great question these are you got you asked some brilliant questions by the way mike i'm gonna yeah. i might steal some of them they're really good <laughs> yeah i mean god i feel really unfinished you know so and quite humble about that especially since becoming a father <laughs> just like yeah certainly deflated some of the um arrogance or hubris that I had about myself. I mean, for sure, I feel unfinished in my giving my gifts to the world. You know, that is all to play for. I feel I feel very satisfied about what I've created, but I feel that, you know, the journey's just begun. So yeah, you know, this whole topic we've had today around what am I passionate to create and express in the world, for me, it's just an ongoing exploration which has become a lot more joyful it used to be like oh god i've got to do it you know but as you as you kind of start to do it more and more you ease into it and then you know chill out about it and that helps so that's one i mean help my spiritual practice as well yeah you know even now i feel ah 
just incredibly grateful about what's unfolded in just the last 18 months. In that way, yeah, you know, again, it just feels like things are opening up into new territories and I have mentors in that way that, you know, I'm like, they're like, yeah, you know, welcome. You're just getting started. So, and, 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 you know, masculinity too, we talked about that at the beginning. Yeah. You know, what is it to be a man in these times? Whew, that is an important question. There's a lot of men get a lot of shit right now too. huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, mas- masculinity men also get critiqued a lot. You know, I have a daughter, I feel kind of happy for her in that sense. My 15-year-old is a boy and I feel, yeah, sad for him in that sense. Or, you know, he's got a different, yeah, it's difficult in some ways. But anyway, that's, so yeah, lots of ways I feel unfinished. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a way that it's, it sounds like cultivating that beginner's mindset and just inviting like, yeah, I'm, I'm forever unfinished and that's a beautiful thing. And that's something that I'm, I'm sitting with too, is that I feel forever unfinished and there's so many different ways. Like my world just feels like it's starting to open up and. Can I just add one little thing? Yeah. Sorry. I just cut you off a bit there. Do you want to finish? Go for it. You know, one, one thing is I, I feel that I, I feel more relaxed about who I am as well than ever. So whilst I feel unfinished. Yeah, there's a certain like relaxation around that that I'm really enjoying. I'm 43 now. Partly it's age, you know. Partly it's doing the inner work and and yeah, reaping the benefits from it. So and that's really nice because it's like the some of the tension out of that being unfinished, mm-hmm. or a lot of the tension just ebbs away. So yes, yeah, yeah. like the mind's not making it a problem anymore. And yeah, it's, I think what I, what I've noticed in a lot of people that I look up to like yourself who have done a lot of the developmental work is there's a, you kind of, a new identity is free to emerge at any given moment. You're you're not hanging on as tightly to this is the way that I am. And this is the way that I always will be. And I've heard you speak too, and, and I still catch myself doing this all the time. There's a way that we think of our development as reaching some sort of pinnacle at one point where it's just like, I did it. <laughs> I figured it out. I'm fully developed. Like this is the best version of me. And I can acknowledge that there's always, there's always an emergence and an unfolding that when we are at peace with that, it, it, yeah, it, it frees you to not be at war with the fact that you're unfinished in the first place. And, and I guess uh, one thing before I move to the last question is I, I really admire you as an interviewer and I'm, I'm just touched. I want to allow myself to receive the, the gift of you saying, I, I think that Mike, I think I'm going to take some of your questions. I, you, you have one <laughs> of the best podcasts out there and I'm, I'm touched that you are experiencing my interviewing style that way. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. The last, well, it's not the very last question, but. This one's straight from the horse's mouth. I put in the screening, what's one question you would love to be asked? And the question that you would love to be asked, it, it rhymes with Tim Ferriss. I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Ferriss's billboard question, but your question reminded me of that. If you had two minutes to share your message via the world's media, what would you say is the question that you said you'd love to be asked. So I, I would love to hear. It's great. I actually forgot I put that question in there too. 
Well, you know, this whole conversation has been that message and it depends on what mood I'm in of what message that message would be. But what I would say is listen to your body, listen to if you feel, if you feel something's off, if you're feeling tension in your body or, you know, a persistent negative emotion, listen to that and listen to what it's telling you. And just know that this thread of unfolding is always calling you and that you can turn to it in any moment. You know, even the darkest moments when you feel lost, you know, to, to begin to, to kind of embrace that you feel lost and that you can come back to who you are already in that moment. And that then you can, yeah, there's this orienting towards passion or to what's calling you that I think is so important in these times, this meaning, you know, you, this is the name of your podcast. Uh, we're, 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 there's a dearth of meaning, you know, in, in our culture. And, and there's a, equally people are, are being in mass numbers, I think, orienting towards meaning, what is meaningful to me. So to, so know there's a thread and that you can follow it and that it doesn't have to be magical or esoteric. It can be just following what lights me up. You know, what is it, that thing that I'm passionate about and feeling that in your body, being in relationship, loving that thing, and it, and it will reveal its gifts to you and take you to some amazing places if you follow it. So that would be my message in this moment, you know, based on the conversation that we've had. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Beautiful. Well, I, I typically conclude the interview by asking, what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? And in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, that question directly ad addressed it. And this whole conversation has already addressed it. So I'm going to Forgo asking, unless unless there's anything else that you want to add or maybe a, a wish for the audience that you haven't already shared, I'll, I'll forgo asking that question. Do, do you feel like you've already addressed? I think we got into that today, didn't we? Yeah, we sure did. Yeah. So I'll, I'll link to all the ways that folks can connect with you in the show notes as well. And I just want to acknowledge you, Joel, again, uh, before we wrap up this interview, I really experience you to be someone who is answering his own calling in every single way possible, that you're, you're challenging what it means to be you on a, a very regular basis. And there's a deep humility. Every time that I've heard you in an interview or as a guest, there's an acknowledgement that, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert here. I'm just someone who's really doing my best to understand all of these different things. And it seems rare these days. There's a lot of people who profess that they are the expert, that they know that they've got the eight step, three step thing that's going to help solve all the problems in your life. And you consistently show up with that level of humility. And also, I think another one of the things I appreciate most about what you're doing at Coaches Rising is that coaching can, a lot of times what I see, it can be reduced to, you know, leadership coaching is just about X, right? Like helping the executive have better presence in the boardroom or something. And Coaches Rising is really bringing in all sorts of different wisdom, different therapeutic modalities, diff different, like bringing music, the arts. There's just like, what does it mean to be alive? And I think that Coaches Rising really does a wonderful, do wonderful job, more than 
I think any other organization that I've seen at addressing that coaching is really just about helping people get most in touch with their vitality and their liveness. And when that is done well, it, you know, all the impact that you can have systemically that we've talked about is possible because that is what it means to be human. It is to be in touch with our eros, in touch with beauty, in touch with wonder, in touch with who we are and loving ourselves when we don't, when we're not in touch with all that. And yeah, and I really appreciate that you took the time to join this podcast as well. Thanks, Mike. That was really beautiful. I'm just taking that in. Really appreciate you holding the space today. I feel really seen and touched and can feel my edges where I'm like, whoa, it's like, uh, can, I, can I let in the praise there? But uh, yeah, I just really, really want to thank you for having me on today as a guest. And uh, I hope this serves people and um, kudos for you for creating this type of experience where I know you've had uh, other people I know on the podcast recently too. And yeah, amazing. You're doing this. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you for that, Joel. And it was a privilege to interview. I really trust that the listeners will get a lot out of this conversation. And again, I'll invite the listeners, go check out Coaches Rising and check out the work that they're doing. It's it's really made a big impact on me and, and the courses that I've done. And to the listeners, whenever you're listening, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.